Amen. Just on the theme of uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we should really do that. Um, although it's far away, it's uh, very near to many of us in our hearts. And uh, the last few year, months have been very painful as you look at what's happening in Gaza. Certainly not over by any means at this present time. And really one doesn't know how it's going to end because even if Israel does manage to defeat Hamas, which it may do militarily, you then have a problem of what's going to happen next. And the issue of peace is going to be the one which they're going to be pushing. And we'd like to see peace, but if it's peace, peace, when there is no peace, then it's not going to be so good. And they want Israel to uh, set up a Palestinian state on the West Bank in Gaza to bring peace. If you know the story, you know that that's not going to bring peace. And uh, I won't go into the details, but we need to pray for Israel and for its leaders and for the whole situation and for the people who are suffering on both sides, that they may have peace with God and that they may also find peace through the, the Messiah. And, you know, the last, we gave out this little leaflet about to the Jewish people, and we had quite a lot of response to that. And this last week, um, we've had quite a lot of opportunities to go to Jewish events. We went to one at the synagogue on Monday, um, and a lot of us had some, it was a Hanukkah meeting, which they invited us to on the strength of the meeting we'd given out. It was a liberal synagogue, actually had the Bishop of London, who's the lady bishop speaking, <laughs> which was a bit surprising. <laughs> uh, I couldn't hear her very well, but apparently what she said actually wasn't too bad. <laughs> I don't think she majored too much on what well, she didn't mention on Jesus, but she did speak about hope being the anchor of the soul. And uh, a lot of us had some good conversations with Jewish people at the time. One of the things which struck me, and certainly with the two conversations I had, was that the Jewish people there really, when they look at what's happening in Israel, Really, they're in a state of fear and basically a state of despair because they can't see an answer. And the one man I spoke to, I said that, well, there is an answer in God in the Bible, but he really couldn't take that one on. So, But just it struck me how facing this crisis, Jewish people are facing a, a, a crisis without understanding what God says in his word and, of course, without understanding that Jesus is the Messiah who's come to bring peace. But... Uh, heart really went out to the people we spoke to and another meeting which Barbara and I went to in a Jewish home where the MP was actually speaking about protecting Jewish people at the time of all the uh, aggravation, all the anti-Semitism which there is around. And again, the MP, Mike Freer, who uh, have a few reservations about him because he's announced it about his husband. So, tell where he's coming from. But actually what he spoke about Israel and protecting the Jewish people was good and I have to say that he did say some good things and but he also said how limited their power is against all the anti-semitism which is coming and particularly mentioned how the anti-semitism is coming not just through the mainstream media but a lot of it through social media through TikTok and all the other things which young people especially are being bombarded with propaganda uh, to make them anti-Israel anti-semitic and spoke about the uh, need to really come to some of that. But uh, just a reminder of somehow the pressures which are on Israel and on the Jewish people at this time. Although it's not a very seasonable subject, it's something we should be aware of, and we should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem indeed. So before I speak, I will just pray on that matter, so let's just have a word. Lord, we do thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. We see the dangers which Israel is facing at this time uh, from not just from Hamas, but also from the nations of the world, trying to impose upon them a peace treaty which would not be peace. 
And we pray, Lord, that you give wisdom and help to the leaders of Israel, to the armies of Israel, and also to the people of Israel, that you spare people from more intense suffering. And we pray for those who are suffering because of the war and the conflict, both Jews and Arabs. Pray, Lord, that you have mercy upon them and help them, Lord, to find peace in you, Lord. Protect lives, we pray. And we pray that you would also remove and defeat the enemy, which is a fearsome and terrible force of Islamic fundamentalism. And just bring down the forces of destruction, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. Well, it's that time of the year. We've already had some carols to remind us of Christmas coming. Uh, if you know me for a while, you may know that I don't actually believe that Jesus was born on December the 25th. And uh, most likely he was born at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you want to know why, there's a, leaf, a little uh, article I've done which is on the table uh, asking the question, when was Jesus born? But he was born, and praise God, he was born in that miraculous and supernatural way. And it's good that we should remember the birth of our Lord Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, this morning I read from Matthew chapter 1, um, did a little bit of recapping on what Andy was saying the other week about the genealogies, and also the fact that Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy, particularly of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is called God with us. And I gave you some reasons why that is to be taken seriously as a prophecy of the virgin birth or even the virgin conception of the Messiah and his miraculous birth. We're going to carry on with Matthew this evening, and we're going to look, we're going to start at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at the other prophecy which is in Matthew concerning the birth of the Messiah concerning Bethlehem. And so I'm going to read the first few verses of Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, from the east came to, Beth, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who, is been, who has been born king of the Jews? For you see his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard all this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes together, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they'd opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in the dream that they should depart, not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, free to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. 
When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because there are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in, in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Praise the Lord. One or two little aside you can mention from that. Notice that they came to the land of Israel, not the land of Palestine. Uh, you may have seen in Bibles maps which show you Palestine in the time of Christ. Uh, nowhere in the New Testament is the country called Palestine. It's called Judea, it's called Galilee, and it's called the land of Israel. It's a true name. Notice also that Herod died before, after this happened. According to historical records, you can work out that Herod died pretty much in months after this terrible massacre which he initiated in Bethlehem. According to Josephus, he died in great agony and affliction uh, and great torments. No doubt the judgment of God upon him for his wickedness and what he had just done. But what I want to concentrate on this evening is the verse, verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This, of course, is a prophecy from the book of Micah. And we're going to look at Micah in a bit more detail in a moment. Fifth chapter of Micah, prophet, contemporary probably with Isaiah. And he's foretelling here that the birth of the Messiah is going to take place, or the birth of a ruler who's going to come out of, uh, to rule over my people Israel, is going to come out of a place called Bethlehem. And the scripture goes on to show you that the one who fulfilled this prophecy is Jesus. So the first point I want to make is that Jesus fulfills prophecy, many prophecies. Some 300 prophecies there are in the Hebrew Scriptures concerning the Messiah, all of them fulfilled or about to be fulfilled, some of them yet to be fulfilled in the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, no one else has fulfilled prophecy in this way. We have details of his life which were written centuries before the event. And how did God know this? Because God knows the end from the beginning and God had planned from the very beginning that God would send the Messiah Yeshua to redeem the world, and he's done it in exactly the way which he said would happen in the scriptures. So Jesus fulfilled prophecy. So God, knowing that sin would come into the world through man's disobedience uh, and giving way to temptation, devised a way to bring salvation into the world. And the word for salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, which becomes Jesus as it's translated into English. But his Hebrew name was Yeshua, which means salvation. And he's the saviour, prophesied from the beginning. He's the seed of the woman, from Genesis chapter 3, who would bruise the head of the serpent, and himself would be bruised in the process, would suffer his 
bruising on the cross, but in so doing, he would bruise the head of the serpent, he would break the power of Satan and deliver those who are God's people out of the power of Satan into the power of God. He'd be born in Bethlehem, and he'd be born to a virgin, and he'd be born at the right time. Uh, one of the questions which sometimes uh, skeptics say, well, Jesus arranged to fulfill all these prophecies uh, so that he could claim to be the Messiah. Well, he couldn't have arranged to fulfill the prophecy of his birth because that was a bit beyond his control. Uh, and if he arranged to fulfill the prophecies of his death and resurrection, well, that was a bit of a hard way to prove the point. So you have to come to the conclusion that actually the only way which Jesus fulfilled these prophecies was because God had put them there in the first place. And Jesus is unique in this, that he's fulfilled all of these prophecies. Um, other objections, particularly from some Jewish rabbis, are that Christians read into the prophecies what they want to read into in order to justify their interpretation about Jesus. We would say actually that it's not the case because the prophecies clearly are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And we're actually going to look at one or two Jewish sources which show that these prophecies are about the Messiah and they should have been fulfilled round about the time when they were fulfilled in Bethlehem. So Jesus is unique in this matter. He's the one who fulfills the prophecies. Um, I said a few things this morning about the difference between the Quran and the Bible. Uh, one of the things which Muslims say is that their man, Muhammad, is the prophet. In fact, you mustn't call him Muhammad. You've got to call him the prophet Muhammad. Good question to ask Muslims is, what prophecies did Muhammad fulfill? What prophecies did Muhammad make? And you'll find it's a big fat zero. Uh, <laughs> They've got one or two fanciful ones, but they don't add up to very much. But Jesus did fulfill prophecies, and he did make prophecies himself, which are to be fulfilled. And one of them refers to Bethlehem. So let's have a little bit of a Bible study on Bethlehem before we look into the prophecy of Micah. What do you know about Bethlehem? First of all, the name Bethlehem, it means something, Bethlehem. It means house of bread. It's also described as Bethlehem Ephrata. Ephrata means fruitful. So out of this place is going to come one we're going to bring the bread of life and it's going to make his people fruitful. So it appears we have a relationship to Yeshua. It's a place which appears various times in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Genesis 35, we have the first mention of Bethlehem. It's the place where Rachel died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. And so it was a place of great sorrow because Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. And today there is a tomb for Rachel just outside Bethlehem. So it's a place of sorrow, but also a place of birth. Further on in the scriptures, you find it's a place where the story of Ruth is worked out. It calls the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, ancestors of David, Read about that in the book of Ruth. It's a place where this Gentile woman was redeemed and brought into the house of Israel by the kinsman redeemer, husband known as Boaz. And in that, he becomes a type of Yeshua, Jesus bringing people into the family of God through redeeming them. And she then became the ancestress of King David and therefore of the Messiah. It's also the place where their grandson Jesse lived and had eight sons, the youngest of whom was David, whom Samuel anointed as king in place of Saul. A time when David was the youngest, tending sheep in Bethlehem, 
and became the king of Israel and wrote the Psalms, Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want, and became an ancestor of the Messiah, of the Lord. So putting all those things together, Bethlehem is actually associated with the high points and the low points of life. Death, birth, marriage, also the place of anointing of God's, of Israel's greatest king. And in the death of Messiah, we can be born again to new life in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. We can be betrothed to Messiah, our kinsman, our redeemer, brings us into the family of God, as Ruth was. And Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring good news of the gospel, as David was anointed to become the king of Judah, of Israel. And we can be anointed by the Holy Spirit in new birth. So Bethlehem is a significant place and it points us towards Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Now according to the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, in the, something special was going to happen at a future time in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from of old, from everlasting. Notice actually that Micah adds a little bit, which is not in Matthew's Gospel. It says his origins of this one are from of old, from everlasting. We're going to pick up on that and see what that significance of that is. So, is this prophecy actually a prophecy of which we can apply to Jesus? Does it apply to the Messiah? As I said, rabbis often say that the Christians just interpret these take these scriptures out of place and they interpret them the way they want to, to in order to try and make it fit with Jesus. Interestingly, there are a number of rabbinic sources which actually do point to this one who comes out of Bethlehem being the Messiah. Here's one from the Targum. Targum are Jewish rewritings, if you like, Jewish paraphrase of the scriptures. Uh, and this one, Targum of Micah 5 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, you who were too small to be numbered among the thousands of the house of Judah, from you shall come forth before me the Messiah to exercise dominion over Israel, whose, his, he whose name is mentioned from before, from the days of creation. So here we have an amazing interpretation, if you like. This is an interpretation of the scripture. And it tells you that one is coming out of Bethlehem is the Messiah, and also that his origins are from of old, from everlasting from before the days of creation. Another quote from Rashi, who is one of the most influential Jewish commentators, says, A new Bethlehem Ephrata, whence David emanated, you should have been the lowest of the clans of Judah because of the stigma of Ruth the Moabitess. From you shall arrange for me, emerge for me the Messiah, son of David, and his origin is of old. So Rashi tells you that the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem and his origin is from of old. So you have Jewish sources here. These are not Christian by any means. These are Jewish sources telling you that there's a connection between the one who comes out of Bethlehem and the Messiah. Of course, it would be problematic if the Messiah has to come out of Bethlehem today because Bethlehem is a town in the Palestinian Authority about eight miles south of Jerusalem and it's a holy Arab town. So if the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem today, then he has to be an Arab, which doesn't work. 
But let's have a look at also at the phrase, the unusual phrase about the origins, which is, which is of this one who's prophesied here. His origins are from of old, from everlasting. So whose origins are from of old, from everlasting? Um, Hebrew actually says mikedem, which means from the east. So it implies he comes from the rising of the sun, if you like. From of old, meyemei olam, from the days of eternity, from everlasting. So he has some origins which come from the days of eternity. So you have to ask the question, whose origins come from the days of eternity? Does any human being have their origins in the days of eternity? No, each one of us can tell the date when we were born and the date, well, we don't, can't tell the date when we're going to die, but we know that we are not eternal beings and we don't start from an eternal place. We start from a moment in time. If anyone who has an eternal nature who starts from eternity and who in fact doesn't start from eternity, he's always been there, is God. And the scriptures tell you that. In Psalm 90, it says that God's existence is described as being me'alam ve'adalam, from eternity to eternity. So he's always been there. God has always existed. One of the things which we have hard, we find it hard to understand because we can't conceive of one who has always existed and people ask, well, who made God? Which we don't know. We can't tell that because God has always been there. God made us. But it's implied in the scripture that the one who's going to come from eternity has to be a divine person. Only God has his origins in eternity. So this does raise an interesting question, to say the least. Now, when you come on to the New Testament, we're going to look at that one in a bit more detail. The New Testament tells us very clearly that people in Jesus' day understood that this prophecy was about the, the coming of the Messiah, and he was to be born in Bethlehem. Already read from Matthew chapter 2, it says, When he, Herod, had gathered the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired from them where the Messiah or the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Israel, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So that actually tells you that it was the common understanding of people that the Messiah was going to come out of Bethlehem. So when they come, the, the kings come and ask, Where's this one who's going to be born, who's going to be a ruler of Israel? They say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And of course, when you read the New Testament, you find that that's exactly where Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2, came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was when they were there that the days were numbered, completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We'll leave out the room for the inn, which is another interesting story, but notice there that they had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to be born in order for Jesus to be born. Why did they have to do this? Because Caesar Augustus had made a decree that there should be a, a census, and because Joseph was of the line of David, they had to go to travel down from Nazareth, some 90 miles down to Bethlehem. Uh, now, that's an interesting factor in itself, because God was overruling, uh, through the decree of the Roman emperor, to get 
Joseph and Mary from Nazareth, where the Messiah was not to be born, down to Bethlehem, where he was to be born. So you can see God overruling even in these events. As Caesar Augustus thought he was the ruler of the world and making all the decisions, God was actually overruling his decision in order to get Joseph and Mary into the right place for Jesus to be born. Everything all works together in God's plan. In fact, later on in one of the disputes about Jesus in the Gospel, in in John chapter 7, there's a dispute about whether Jesus is the Messiah. And the objectors say, some said, "Will, will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division of the people among them. That's quite a humorous scripture in some ways because here's the opposition saying Jesus can't be the Messiah because he comes out of, Bethlehem, out of Galilee. Messiah is supposed to come be born in Bethlehem. Well, if they tried to look a little bit further into it, they find even though that Jesus came out of Galilee, was known as Jesus of Nazareth, he was actually really born in Bethlehem. And often the opposition does that, don't they? They sort of make up some objection, but they don't follow it through far enough because there's an answer to their objection if they were actually to look into it, which would actually point to them believing in Yeshua. So in the Gospels, you see how God overruled the events through the Roman census to bring Joseph and Miriam down to, from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order for Yeshua to be born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the prophecy. And Matthew also tells us about the fulfillment of the prophecy in Messiah's birth, also about the satanic attempt to kill him at birth through the wicked Herod and God's provision and deliverance. Now, there's no doubt that what was operating through Herod's mind was Satan who wanted to destroy Jesus. Uh, And God overruled and brought deliverance by sending them down to Egypt and then calling them out of Egypt. And also we see how John described Jesus as the word made flesh, existing from eternity to fulfill the prophecy of Micah chapter 5. So with that, we're going to now look at the prophecy of Micah um, and put it in context. So Micah chapter 5, we're going to read quite a bit of it. So if you've got the Bibles, turn to Micah chapter 5. You'll find it in the Minor Prophets. You got this black Bible, it's on page 1074. But I'm putting it up on the board, so if you can't find it, just follow it on the board here. Okay, so let's read uh, Micah chapter 5. I'll read down to verse 9. Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of the troops, he has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, until the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, and for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be the peace when the Assyrian comes into our land. When he treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria, 
and the land of Nimrod at his entrances, thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. When he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, and the, like a young lion among the flocks of the pe- sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none shall deliver. So let's have a look at some of those verses. It goes on a bit, but we'll leave it to that for the moment. First of all, it says, He has laid siege against us. Micah tells us that. tells us that at the time when this prophecy is to be fulfilled, Israel is going to be humbled by foreign powers, and even her judges will bear insults. They will siege against you. There will be a Roman occupation. At that time when Israel is in some distress, uh, out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So in the coming time of humiliation, under foreign powers, God's going to raise up a great ruler. Uh, Hebrew word is Moshel, from a humble place from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means, as I said, the house of bread. What is going to be born out of Bethlehem is Meshua, who's the bread of life, according to John chapter 6. Ephrata means fruitfulness or abundance. So Jesus is going to feed us with the bread of life, make us fruitful by watering our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Bethlehem Ephrata. There is actually a Jewish settlement today in the area called Ephrat, by the way. Okay, it goes on to say, his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Very interesting scripture. If his goings forth, his origins are from of old, from everlasting, that means that he is pre-existent. That means he was there before the creation of the world and before the creation of the universe. And this promise can only be fulfilled in one, as I've already said, who is a divine person. So Micah's prophetic voice is declaring here that Jesus, who's going to be born in Bethlehem, has his origins not in his birth in Bethlehem or even in his conception nine months earlier. He has his origins in the days of eternity. In other words, he is there before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world, which is what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Tells us he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22. That means he's there from the very beginning. Jesus was there. He's going to be there at the very end and through all eternity. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He's always been there. Which means he has to be God. So before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he existed as the second person of the triunity. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So this one who is born in Bethlehem is not just a person born, he's not just a prophet, he is the one who has always existed, and in fact, he's God. The only way you can interpret John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, is that the one who is really born as the Word, going to be made flesh in the person of Jesus, is a divine person, he is God. Something which many people including Muslims, including actually 
majority of rabbis and Jewish people have difficulty in conceiving, and indeed many Christians have difficulties trying to work it out. But that's what the Bible tells you. Uh, the only way it can happen actually is if God is a plural unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the person of God who is in Jesus became man and dwelt amongst us uh, in his incarnation. Uh, towards the end of his life, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. A couple of quotes from that. He says in verse 5, Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before the world was. So Jesus tells, praying to the Father, and he says, I had the glory with you, I was with you in heaven, in glory, before the world was even created. Now I'm coming back to you, so restore unto me the glory which I laid aside in order to become man and dwell amongst you, amongst humans in, in my incarnation. And in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus' purpose in coming to the world and going to the cross and rising from the dead is that he may bring people like you and me into that glory so that we, ha we may have a future to be with the Lord in glory forever. But notice he says, you love me before the foundation of the world. So these scriptures are telling you very clearly that Jesus is one who is pre in before he's pre-existent, he's always existed before the foundation of the world. Only God. And in... Uh, yeah, I haven't put that verse up. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created for him, through him and for him. Okay, so it's really pushing the point here that Jesus is the one who is the creator. He's always been there and he's the one through whom everything was created. One commentator called Clark says of this, he was before all things and he is the creator of all things. So he is the eternal and no part of what was created. Every being but God has been created. Whatever has not been created is God. But Jesus is the creator of all things, therefore he is God, for he cannot be part of his own work. Can you work that out? Well, it's hard to work out, but it's true. That's what Jesus is. He's always been there, he always has been there, and he's the one through whom everything was created. Now, if you look through the Old Testament, through the Tanakh, you find that God appeared in various times in the person of the angel of the Lord. Many instances where their individuals are shown a face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord. Uh, you have the Lord in Genesis chapter 3, walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the garden. There are physical actions to walk and to talk. In Genesis 18, you have three men who come and appear before Abraham, two of whom are angels and one of whom is described as being the Lord. Abraham even gives them some food to eat. So another physical action which they make, they eat in the presence of Abraham. Genesis 32, you have... Uh, Jacob, who wrestles with a man, and after he's wrestled with him, he says that he's seen the face of God, and he calls the place Peniel. And he's afraid he's going to die because he's seen God. But God blesses him and calls him Israel, gives him a new name. So think about that. That's three actions, walking and talking, eating and wrestling. All of those are physical actions, aren't they? 
And the Bible records that humans had some encounter with this being who is revealed to be God and encountered him and saw him in this way. And you have a number of times when Moses saw God. One time in Exodus, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, when uh, the elders of Israel go up and they see the God of Israel. And they ate and drank in his presence. So again, you've got a physical action in the presence of God who they saw physically. So it tells you that God was able to appear in some form in the Hebrew Scriptures and be seen and visited human, the earth and was seen by humans. A number of others, Joshua before the uh, going into Jericho, parents of uh, Samson saw the angel of the Lord and saw that, recognized that he was God. Now in each of these situations, the person is given a different title, but in all the cases, the person is plainly referred to as the Lord and as God, appearing in some human form. So these are all examples in the Hebrew Scriptures. They're not in the New Testament. They're in the Old Testament, showing that God can appear in some human form. And he's going to make his final appearance in human form in the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And it shows us that Jesus is far more than a man, and it shows us also his great love that he would leave heaven in order to share his glory with us here on the earth. Okay, let's go on with the Micah prophecy. Uh, so going back to Micah, uh, following this verse, it says in verse 3, Then he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his people, his brethren, shall return to the children of Israel. Shall give them up until the time. So again, this is speaking now about the one who's coming to Bethlehem, who is the Messiah. Speaking about God, actually. Uh, Micah's actually anticipating a future time in this prophecy, one that has been partially fulfilled by the Babylonian exile and the return, but also by the current dispersion of the Jewish people and their return to the land of Israel today. So scriptures actually deal with events which sometimes are in the near future, but sometimes in the distant future. And this one here is actually an intimation that of the dispersion of the Jewish people from the land, uh, God apparently giving them up, but then bringing them back again. And we know that following the events of the crucifixion and the rejection of Yeshua by the majority, by the religious leaders of Israel, leading to the revolt against the, the Romans in the AD 70, you had the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jewish people into the nations. And many people may have had the impression, actually, that God had given them up. And even despite the restoration of Israel today, many Jewish people still feel that God has given them up. And God isn't caring for them, especially after the Holocaust. And even the present events which we see taking place are making Jewish people wonder, where is God? Why doesn't God help us? Has God given us up? Now, this scripture implies that there'll be that feeling amongst Jewish people, but also there'll be a restoration. God will bring them back again. And maybe some of you have felt times when God has given you up or that you're in such trouble that God doesn't hear your prayers, but God has never given you up. And God has never given up Israel. And even if he judges and causes trouble to come to them, he's going to restore them and bring them back to himself. And that's what this scripture is telling you. It's going to be a time of restoration Maybe time through a time of trouble also. But then it says, 
he should give them up until the time that she who is in labour has given birth. <clears throat> so, prophecy is giving some uh, intimation of a future time when God is going to restore them. The Bible speaks about a time of trouble, a time of distress, and teaches also a time of restoration from the Lord. And this may seem distant, but God's going to bring it to pass. And even today, we can see the signs of Jesus bringing together the events which are leading up to the restoration of Israel, uh, both physically and spiritually, and the return of the Messiah to take up his rule over Israel and to bring peace and justice. It will be a time of trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30, it says, We've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. But it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jeremiah chapter 30. So he's going to bring about a restoration, but it'll be through a time of trouble. He shall be saved out of it. And the promise of God, which is a real promise, is that he's going to bring restoration to his people. And no matter how bad things may seem at the present time, even in Israel, God has a promise that there was going to be a future restoration. And the remnant of his brethren shall return. It says you shall feed them in the strength of the Lord. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Well, it says here in Micah, verse 7, verse 8. So after the time of trial, the Lord says he's going to restore gloriously. So the ruler who's born in Israel is going to tenderly care for his flock in the strength of the Lord. And you have the picture in the New Testament, of course, of Jesus as the shepherd who cares for his people. In John chapter 10, then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So that's Jesus, the good shepherd, and he cares for the sheep. That's the people who are going to come to believe in him, both Jews and Gentiles. And God wants to bring this message of hope and peace to his people Israel, so that they may be restored and come to him. And it goes on in Micah to say, they shall abide for now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Greatness of this ruler is going to bring his peace, not just to Israel, but to the ends of the earth, to all people. And at this time of trouble in the world, when people feel abandoned, many people feel abandoned, what they need to do is to turn to the Lord and find that peace with God through Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And know that he does really care for us. He cares for each one of us. And he's able to provide for us and bring us through the times of trouble. It goes on in Micah to say that this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land. doesn't just say he's going to bring peace, he says he is peace. And what Israel needs more than anything else at this time of conflict is peace. 
It's pretty hard to see in the natural how that's going to happen. But the Bible assures us it will happen. It will happen through the one who's been born in Bethlehem, even now is offering individual peace to us. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians when he said that Jesus is our peace. He says, he himself is our peace, who's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near, for through him we have both accessed by one spirit to the Father. How do we get peace with God? <laughs> get peace with God through the Messiah, who is our peace, one who's made peace with God through his death on the cross to redeem us and bring us to God. That's the message. Unfortunately for many Jewish people, it's not brought peace, and it's brought trouble as they've been bashed on the head by the cross. But that's the opposite of what Jesus said. He wants to bring peace to every person on the face of the earth, but particularly to his people Israel through the message of the gospel, bringing peace through sin forgiven and through knowing God through Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. He speaks also about when the Assyrian comes into our land. Now that's both a near, to, near prophecy and a distant prophecy because the Assyrian was going to come into our land not long after Micah gave this prophecy. He's going to come first of all down to Israel, the northern kingdom, and take them away captives. And later on, he was going to come down to the southern kingdom of Judah with the same intention. But when he comes down to the southern kingdom of Judah, then God's going to raise up a good king, Hezekiah, and a prophet, Isaiah, who give him the right advice. And they pray to God, and God then smites the Assyrians and defends Jerusalem and saves Israel, saves Judah and Jerusalem from the Assyrian attack. So he's going to bring the peace. Isaiah 37 to 39 tells you about that. Beyond this, also, Micah uses the idea of the Assyrian for all of the pagan empires who are going to come against Israel, and saying that he's going to be the peace. And the, the Assyrian actually becomes a type also of the Antichrist who will come in the last days, who will come into the land offering a false peace, but not peace, and will actually bring war and desolation and the abomination of desolation to be destroyed in a moment by the returning Messiah, who will bring real peace. And he tells us, we'll raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. Though the enemies of God's people will come against them under God's blessing, the leaders will raise up from them mighty men, and God will work to deliver his people through the Prince of Peace. So ultimately, there is a hope, but the hope is all bound up in the Messiah. Now, it's interesting, if you turn back in Micah to chapter 4, the previous chapter, you find that he has a repetition of the famous verses from Isaiah about the establishment of peace in the last days. We'll finish with this verse, Isaiah, uh, Micah chapter 4, verse 1. And if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 2, you'll find it's almost identical. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and the peoples, many peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the Lord shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. 
But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken this. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. The great prophecy, which I say is in Isaiah 2, but also here in Micah, prophecy of the, mess, the rule of the Messiah to bring peace and justice at the end of days when Jesus the Messiah returns, this time not as a suffering servant, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. A time when there's great stress and trouble on the earth, and he causes an end to war, an end to fighting, an end to armies, destroys the weapons of destruction, turns them into agricultural implements to make the world into a better place to bring peace and justice. And this is a supernatural act. Said so when we were at the synagogue, I talked to a Jewish man and I said that God's going to intervene in this situation and bring peace. And he said, well, God doesn't do that sort of thing. But actually he is. And there's one hope, one hope which you have in this present time. That is the coming of the Lord. Humans actually are not going to sort out the mess which we have in the world today. But the Lord is. And he's come, first of all, to sort out you and me, to give us peace through the blood of the cross. He's coming back to bring peace to the world and to bring his order and justice to the world at the second coming of Jesus, which is also the day of judgment when you're going to separate between the lost and the saved. So make sure you're on the side of the saved by believing in Yeshua now, and you can have peace with God and have a glorious future forever and ever. Amen. Okay, let's uh, have a word of prayer, then I'll hand back to Andy. Lord, we thank you that we have a hope in Yeshua the Messiah. We thank you that you have fulfilled the prophecies of the first coming of Messiah and that you will fulfill the prophecies of the second coming of Messiah. And it's all there in the Hebrew prophets and it's all there in the New Testament and it all points to Yeshua, Jesus as the Messiah. Help each one of us here to know that we have peace with God through Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah and we have a future and a hope in him. So bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine upon us and grant us your peace. Shalom. Through the name of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Amen.